This episode is sponsored by 5.11, a company that I've used for well over a decade and continue to use to this day. And 5.11 is offering you guys, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, a discount on every purchase you make with them. Before we get to that code, I want to highlight a couple of products that, again, I personally use today. One of the most impressive products they just released is their Rush Backpack 2.0. Now, for many of you, whether you're going to the fire station, the police station, whether you're traveling with your family, whether you're taking training courses, we have to fly, we have to drive, we have to take trains. And I have to say, I own multiple backpacks, many of uh, 5.11's different ones, but as far as a day pack, this one was the most impressive. There are so many different compartments. The way it sits on your back is incredibly comfortable. If you are a concealed carry person, there's also a spot for a weapon. So they've thought of multiple, multiple things that a man or woman would have to do on a daily basis. That is in addition to all of the products that I talk about a lot. Their uniforms fit for men or fit for women in the first responder professions. The footwear that they offer, whether it's the Norris sneaker or the Atlas system that is designed for foot health and therefore knees and back and hips and shoulders and neck. As a civilian, I live in a lot of their clothes as well. Their jeans stretch. You can actually squat down in them. We live in Florida here, so I wear a lot of their shorts, which again, very, very lightweight material. You can get it wet and it will dry almost immediately. And then moving to the fitness and tactical space, I used to have just a regular weight vest. Recently, I switched to a 511 vest and actually bought ballistic plates as well. My thinking was simply, if I'm going to have a vest, why not have one that protects me as well? And that TAC vest is trusted by law enforcement all around the country. So I mentioned they were going to offer you a discount code. So if you go to 511tactical.com and enter the code SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5, you'll get 15% off not just that one purchase, but every time you visit their store. And if you want to learn more about 5.11, their mission, their products, then listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO and founder, Francisco Morales. This episode is sponsored by BeaverFit. And as always, this is another company that I've not only been aware of for several years, but I also completely trust and I know is a great fit for this audience. Having not only been a firefighter in my career, but also a strength and conditioning coach, I've seen the challenges that we have getting the tactical athlete fit when it comes to budgets, when it comes to space. And Beaver Fit has solutions for so many of our challenges. When it comes to space, they have the gym box, for example, which is literally the size of a footlocker that when you open it up and build it becomes a squat rack, a pull-up bar, a box, and even a wall ball target. So you can get a full workout for a crew purely on that one box. Expanding out, they have storage containers that become entire gyms. You store everything in the inside, and you can then deploy racks and pull-up bars on the outside. They have gyms on trailers you can take from station to station. They have tactical boxes with breaching props and collapse props. And then on the flip side, the durability is another issue that we see. So often departments buy the low bid, you know, the cheapest they can find. And ultimately, that hard-earned wellness budget gets wasted in equipment that rusts and falls apart. BeaverFit's gear is designed to be used in the most extreme environments, whether it's the deserts of the Middle East or simply on the deck of a naval ship. So they are designed to not only be outside, but to be beaten up by some of the most elite operators on the planet. Now, they are offering you, the audience of the Behind the Shield podcast, 10% off your purchase. So if you go to either the US site, which is graymangear.com, or the UK site, which is getbeaverfit.com, 
Use the code BTS10, that's BTS10, and you will get 10% off your purchase. If you want to hear more about this company, and I'm sure you do, listen to episode 477 with the original founder, Tom Beaver from the UK, or the founders of BeaverFit USA, Alex Rudhouse and Mike Taylor, on episode 457. Welcome to episode 489 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Jamie Cochran. Now, Jamie is one of the founding members of Echelon Front and was the backbone of the organization helping it rise when Jocko and Leif were originally trying to send their message out to the world. She has now since grown into a chief position within the organization, but on top of that, she is also a military wife. Her husband, Flynn, is also a Navy SEAL. So there are so many layers to this conversation from her early life and how that kind of added up to setting her up for success within that company to being a military spouse and a single mother while he was deployed, uh, losing one of Flynn's best friends, then transitioning to a leadership position within Echelon Front. And most recently at the Orlando event that I was fortunate enough to attend, she spoke for the first time as well. So there is so much information in this conversation. I do want to point out I am an absolute audiophile and there was some sort of internet glitch. We we're supposed to have the, like the best internet on planet Earth. Um, but a couple of times there's a slight glitch and you hear it, but that's not your stereo. It is the recording. However, it is minute and I don't think it's going to be distracting at all. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every single week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and leave a rating. Every five-star rating truly elevates this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 500 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jamie Cochran. Enjoy. Well, Jamie, I want to start by saying thank you so much, firstly, for inviting me to the Echelon Front Muster, and we'll get to that, but secondly, for coming on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Yeah, I appreciate you having me. I have to admit, this is the first podcast interview I've done, and uh, I would be lying if I wasn't if I didn't say I was a little bit nervous about this, but I'm excited, obviously, to chat with you, James. Well, I think it's probably much less nerve-wracking than having Jocko interviews, so maybe this is a good place to start. True, very true. <laughs> All right. Well, um, firstly, where on planet Earth are we finding you today? I am currently living in Virginia Beach. Brilliant. All right. Well, I love to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me a little bit of your family dynamics. So what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah. So I was born in Utah, but I moved when I was three to Seattle. So Seattle is really home for me. Um, I have an older brother. He's nine years older than me. So uh, we surprisingly for the age gap, we're very close. Uh, it's the only brother, only sibling that I have. Uh, both my parents, we, I'm really lucky because both my, my parents have what I would envision as like the perfect 
relationship. They're, they're not only just partners in marriage, they're best friends. So I grew up with this really cool opportunity to see my parents interact with each other, um, which taught me so much about what it is that I wanted, you know, later in the future with my husband. Um, but you know, my brother and I grew up, uh, my dad blue collar, you know, he worked hard. He worked really hard uh, to take care of us. My mom worked, uh, as, uh, in, in the United Steelworkers um, Association for a union. And so she just really believed in helping people, um, really loved the work that she did. And I got to see her do some incredible things within her career. So just a really cool family dynamic. We're all very, very close. Um, you know, my I consider my parents, not only just my parents, but my closest friends. And so um, just really lucky to have grown up in that kind of environment. Brilliant. Well, that's a, a- Interesting tangent just for a moment. So, you know, we have a very strong union here in the fire service and, you know, it does th- some things very well. And I think some things poorly, um, especially when it comes to the kind of wellness side. What was the kind of philosophy on unions? Cause someone's unions are demonized. Obviously, when you're in those professions, you realize that they do a lot of good too. So did you ever get any kind of, uh, perspective on that from your parents? Yeah, what's interesting is that my dad worked in the steel industry. And so the union that my mother worked for was the union that, you know, over, you know, was was a part of the uh, organization that my dad was part of. So I think we got to see both sides. Um, my mom worked really hard in, in her job, really, really hard in her job. She did some incredible things to really take care of people. And so I think that there is this dynamic in unions that there's a part of it that is for the best interest of the workers and the employees and making sure that they get what they need, that they have the resources that they need, that they have the training that they need and that they're taken care of. And I think in those ways, they're incredible. We also, you know, my dad got to see some ways in which the union was, you know, maybe didn't take care of them as best as possible where people, you know, based on seniority, get hired over people that maybe were better fit suited for the job. But, um, you know, the overriding sense in our household was that my mom and the union that she worked for was really working to help the people that worked in these different jobs. And my dad was the beneficiary of that working in an organization that was a part of the unit that my mom worked for. So I think that, you know, there's always good and bad. There's always improvements to be made. But over overall, um, I'm really proud of the work that both my parents did growing up. Beautiful. Well, you mentioned as well the that their marriage was a was a great marriage. So as a you know a married woman yourself now, when you look back, what elements of of how they were, how they chose each other, how they treated each other, do you think set them up for success? Yeah, my parents are friends, which I think is an incredible aspect in a marriage that you want to hang out with the person that you're married to, that you enjoy their company, that you like to do the same things, and so. I got to see them in that capacity. They were very much friends growing up. Um, They were absolutely 100% aligned on what it is that they wanted for their family. So my brother and I knew without a shadow of a doubt that we were their priority. Um, I feel absolutely blessed. And I, I look back on it now, and I don't know that I appreciated it when I was young, but I was an active kid. I did a lot of things. So I was all over the place. I was in sports. I was in music. I was in acting. I mean, I was all over the place. And I think back about all of those games, all those practices, everything that I did. And there was never a moment that I didn't have someone in the stands supporting me. So if it wasn't both my parents, it was one of them. And if one of them couldn't make it, my brother was there because they really cared about all of us feeling like 
didn't have the support. Um, so I was lucky in that endeavor. Uh, and my parents, you know, they practice this principle. We talked about it at Echelon Front. I know we're going to talk a little bit about this, but this idea of cover and move. My parents are the epitome of that. My mom had to travel sometimes for work. My dad would pick it up and and take over and, and cover down on the home and vice versa. Um, my dad worked shift work. And so they had to constantly be communicating effectively to manage the various things my brother and I had to, to manage our household because my dad would maybe work nights or graveyard shift and kind of be on odd schedules. Um, and it was like a running joke in our family. My mom would go out of town uh, for work and she'd travel periodically. And we knew that when she was out of town, we would get six days of, of, of dinners that had some component of ground beef. So it was like hamburger helpers, sloppy joes, spaghetti. Um, but that, you know, that was what my dad um, did. And he took over when he needed to. And they just worked really, really well as a team. And even now um, that we're out of the house and it's just the two of them, they're still best friends and they still just love hanging out together. And I want more than anything for that to be. That's what I want in my marriage. That's what I hope my kids find in their marriage. Um, it's just that they they really like hanging out with that other person. So um, I just was lucky to have a really cool example of two people that really you know took marriage as a teamwork endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, I think an interesting thing as well, and it's 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 a good lens to look at it through Echelon Front because of, there are a lot of people that really admire Jocko, for example, Leif and everyone else on the team, but he's, you know, Jocko's kind of front and center. And I think it's very easy to get pulled into that misconception. And I know it's not something that he's trying to put out there of, you know, grind, grind, work, work, work. And the number of people I've had on here, one of the most damaging things for them was that one or both parents weren't there. And so I think that balance, I know that work-life balance is kind of like a buzzword at the moment, but it's it's so important to to take a step back and go, yeah, I, I absolutely need to put food on the table. I need to work. But there's a line where the the extra work I'm doing is actually detrimental to the generation I'm trying to bring up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we you talk about like the dinner yeah, around the dinner table. And that's like, uh, unfortunately, uh, a, a thing sort of gone away. I mean, we try really hard to do that here in our home. But when I was growing up, like that was just what you did. It didn't matter what we had going on. We sat together at the dinner table and we had dinner every single night, um, at least as, mo as many nights as we possibly could. Um, and that was important because we built a really cool bond where we got to sit at din the dinner table, talk, and, you know, I got to learn more about my parents. And, and it was just it's just a dynamic that I think are missing nowadays in in this mindset of like, it's just about the grind. We have to go, go, go. Even with my kids, I see it now, you know, it's, it's, you got to be at practice here and you got to be at here and you've got homework here. And I think sometimes, and maybe what COVID provided us a little bit was a second to like, take a step back and realize that we need to sit around a dinner table and just talk. Um, so I, I agree that work-life balance is critical. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned about being sporty. So what, what athlete, excuse me, what um, athletics were you participating in? Yeah, I started out, I was a gymnast at a very young age uh, and I, I love gymnastics and I, I, I was pretty competitive at it. Uh, and then when I hit junior high, I sort of had gotten to a point where I love gymnastics. It was awesome, but it's a very, very demanding sport and it kind of takes up all of your time. If, if, if you want to do other things, it's hard to do. And so when I hit junior high, I decided that I really love gymnastics. I still continue to compete, but just not at that same competitive level. And what I wanted to do was try other sports. Um, so I then in, in high school and junior high, I played essentially three season sports. I was always the kid that just wanted to do it all. Uh, so I played volleyball, fast pitch on a, on a traveling team. And then I continued, obviously, with gymnastics as well throughout um, 
throughout my high school career. Uh, but I, I love sports in general. I just love trying new things really is what it came down to. Now, what about career aspirations when you were in school? Yeah. So when I was younger, I actually, there, there was a lot of different things I was interested in. I was always sort of a creative mind. So I always thought I'd go into something related to the arts. Um, I was a musician, so I loved singing and performing. And so I had big aspirations of being a songwriter or going and singing and or performing and things of that nature. And I actually went, went to uh, an art school initially to get a degree in music and then sort of realized very quickly that uh, I didn't need a degree in music to, to sing and write and perform. So I switched it up and realized that I had other aspirations um, and, and sort of refocused on some marketing components, went to school for communications and marketing. Uh, but I, I don't know that growing up, I had a really clear vision of what it is that I wanted to do. I just, as I said before, I kind of liked it all. I just wanted to ex experience it all. And I found that business has allowed me to do that, just kind of experience all sorts of aspects within an organization. So, um, but yeah, I wanted to be a singer when I was younger. That's really what my passion was. So what did you find yourself doing? I mean, I think that's one of the things that's, again, I think under, under, underappreciated, I guess is the right word, is in England, we graduate at 16. And in, obviously in the States is 18. You know, yes, you have those, those individuals that know they want to be a SEAL or a doctor or a firefighter and that's it. And they're on the path and they graduate and everything's great. And then you have the other 90% that are just fumbling around like, what the hell am I going to do? You know, and it's kind of a, a daunting element. You find yourself working some really shitty jobs trying to figure out, you know, where you, where you belong in life. So what was that path, you know, initially for you, those first few years after graduating? Yeah. You know, I, I talk about this really awesome family dynamic and I loved, I was very close with my family. I had no reason to sort of want to get up and leave. And yet I still had this really, like intense sense of like, I've got to get out of here. And it wasn't, had nothing to do with my family had nothing to do with my hometown. I just have this sense of like, I've got to go. I've got to get, I've got to get out there. Um, so I grew up in Seattle. I graduated high school and a few months later, Karen me off in Los Angeles. I started my college career. I started at Azusa Pacific. Um, and I remember the day we drove, we drove across, you know, we drove from Seattle down to, um, you know, Los Angeles. They unhooked my car. They helped me unpack my stuff. And then we gave hugs and they drove off. And I was sitting in the parking lot by myself. And I had that moment of like, what have I done? I'm here in, in Los Angeles, this big, big world. Um, I'm all by myself. I'm 18. Um, and it, it, I remember it vividly. I remember just sitting in the car and just thinking like, what have I done? Um, but it, it, that experience helped me to sort of figure out that I don't have to have it all figured out right now. I definitely had friends that knew exactly what they wanted to do, exactly where they wanted to go. That was never me. I was always trying new things. I was always up for the new adventure, the up, you know, whatever came across. I was like, cool, let's do that. Um, and that helped me, I think, in my college career navigate as I made decisions to change my major and to go into something else and to try something new. Uh, in college, I was I, I worked at a restaurant. I kind of started as a as a hostess and then a waitress and then a bartender. And I, I worked there. I, it was actually McCormick and Schmicks, a, a seafood restaurant. I worked there for several years. When I moved uh, schools to Cal State LA, I got a job as a resident assistant, which was an incredible choice and really helped me understand more about myself because I was in a, now in a leadership role. I had some responsibility on campus. I had some incredible mentors and peers that really helped me kind of understand what it is I like to do. I got to start getting my hands in event planning and realized I loved that a lot um, in that role. And, and so I was a resident assistant all throughout uh, college. 
Uh, and then when I graduated, I had no idea what it is that I wanted to do. In fact, I was so confused as to what I wanted to do. I was just like, my friend hit me up one day and said, hey, why don't we go apply to be flight attendants? You know, we're, we're single, we'll travel the world, you know, it'll be awesome. And so uh, right out of college, I actually went into uh, being a flight attendant and flew for Alaska. It was it was pretty short lived uh, because my life my life circumstances changes pretty rapidly. This whole idea of being single and being able to travel the world didn't didn't plan out uh, as as I had initially thought it would. But um, I was always up to try something different, and that kind of led me down on kind of a unique path to get to where I'm at today. But it was I'm, I'm grateful for it because I got to learn a lot of different things in those different job roles that I had. Beautiful. Well, let's talk about. Um, meeting Flynn then and, and you know, the, the military side. So kind of how did you guys meet and then walk me through, you know, going from, like you said, a, a single girl from Seattle to being in a military family? Yeah. So my, my husband Flynn is one of eight kids um, and his young, so there's seven boys and one girl and the youngest is the girl. And she happened to be my best friend growing up. So I've sort of been around his family um, you know, his mom used to make me lunches on game days. Um, I worked at her daycare in the summer. He's a nephew, went to her daycare that she owned there at her house. And so I've been around his family for a really long time since I was young. Um, and But I didn't really know Flynn. He's four years older than me. She has seven other brothers. So in my mind, he's just like one other brother. I never, never in a million years imagined I would marry or even be interested in one of her brothers. Uh, but I didn't really know him because he was out of the house by the time we got really close. And um, meanwhile, I went to school in LA. I was, I was in LA preparing for graduation. He was in San Diego stationed in the Navy and our paths kind of crossed a few times. And, you know, his sister got married or our family celebrated activities together. So we were at Christmas and we kind of had this family, uh, you know, get together and I saw him again and our paths crossed a few times. And then it was, you know, one random day and he called me and he's like, hey, I'm in L.A., which come to find out later, he like made himself in, a, in L.A. <laughs> um, and we we hung out for like half an hour. It wasn't even like a big it wasn't like a definitely I didn't think it was a date or anything of that nature. Um, and he invited me down to San Diego to uh, I had never been. I was living in L.A. and I actually blew him off the first weekend, partly because I wasn't that interested in Flynn. I didn't really think that uh, there was there was an opportunity there. Um, and then also because I was broke. I mean, I was in college working, you know, as a, as a waitress. And so I couldn't, the idea of giving up a weekend's shift, uh, you know, of tips was like, I can't do that. I've rent to pay. So I blew him off and it was his sister who actually called and, and sort of convinced me to go to San Diego. So I went to San Diego a couple weekends later and he was like, he planned this weekend. It was back to back to back to back activities. I mean, just a, a crazy weekend of just, I, I couldn't even tell you all the things we did in that weekend. Um, and he did that because he's like, well, if we don't get along, at least we have something to do. Um, and what's interesting about that weekend is from that weekend until we got engaged was only three months. And then we got married three months later. So from that weekend to our wedding was six months. So it obviously happened really fast. I knew his family growing up. So a lot of those things that you want to get to know about someone, I already knew as far as his background and his beliefs and some of those key components to his character. Um, and so it happened very quickly. Um, and as far as the military aspect, you know, I didn't grow up in a military home. And in fact, I, I don't really even remember we had a very patriotic home. My parents are massively grateful for our servicemen and women, but it wasn't something that I knew much about. I didn't know anybody active duty in the military. It wasn't like, 
it just wasn't something I knew a lot about. And all of a sudden I find myself married to a, an officer in the Navy and we got married on a Thursday and he started buds that following Monday. So very quickly my life changed and it was a very, it was a very uh, real welcome to the Navy within that first, you know, couple of days of our, our, our marriage together. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's funny. Cause actually when I went on first date with my wife, we basically, I mean, technically we lived together from day two onwards, so I can relate. <laughs> um, so with that then, um, you know, from what you've heard him talk about, and I, I ask the SEALs this all the time, what was it about his background and his mindset that allowed him to complete BUDS when so many people rang the bell? Yeah, you know, he... He describes that, you know, there's a lot of SEALs out there that will say, you know, I, ne I never thought about quitting. Um, and I don't know that that was the case for Flynn. I think he definitely has talked about, yeah, there were moments where I thought, man, this sucks. <laughs> I want to be done. Um, and, and to hear him talk about it later, he, you know, the thing that he kept thinking was like, hey, if, if I quit, I'm going to have to tell my wife and my dad I didn't make it. And I don't know that that was like absolutely the driving force, but for him, there was just, there was no option because he couldn't fathom the idea of having to break that news to me or his dad. Um, and, you know, he's, he's one of eight kids, you know, he's, like I said before, he's got seven brothers. So he grew up in the mix. Like they, there was, they, that dynamic, I think helped him a lot, like deal with hard things. And so he I don't think there was ever a point where, you know, even if it flashed through his mind that he, that he was, he was going to give up. He grew up in a family where that just wasn't the case and they supported each other, but they push each other really hard. And so, um, you know, being the sixth of, of eight, he just, it just wasn't something he was willing to do. Now with, you know, as you said, you, you met him, you had this very intense relationship and then he goes off to training. Um, you know, if, for example, in the fire service, you know, it was funny when I graduated, uh, my wife at the time and I went to see ladder 49 and a bunch of people die in that in the end. And then she was like boohooing for, I think about an hour after that. Um, but I told her it's okay. You know, we, we, we don't do that kind of dangerous stuff. And actually that was not completely the truth, but, um, you know, that you can join the military and be in, in a clerical position or somewhere and, and genuinely not be in that much, you know, harm's way. When it comes to being a Navy SEAL, you know damn well that, you know, more, more likely than not is definitely going to be a, you know, a very dangerous position. How, how was that discussion? How did you kind of, um, process that in your mind when, when he did leave? You know, if I'm being really honest, for the first, um, probably two years in his career, maybe even longer, I just lived, I just was naive. You know, I was naive to that mindset. I really didn't think about it. I know, I know that that's you know a source of um, concern for a lot of military wives when their husbands deploy um, or spouses in general. Uh, but for me, I didn't really worry about him. You know, like he he had become a seal at this point by the time he deployed. Um, I knew his friends, I knew his teammates, and there was this really strong sense of, hey, these are these are the best in their field, almost as if these guys are invincible. And I was naive to it. He went on his first deployment, and I really don't remember having that sense of, um, you know, concern that anything would ever happen to him. Um, 
And I lived in that naive world in that, you know, safe little world. And, and until we lost our, our friend and it wasn't until that moment that I realized they're not invincible. And what, what really for me, you know, I always was really comforted in this idea that I knew his teammates and I knew that his teammates would sacrifice themselves to save him. And the realization of that is also the fact that my husband would have done this for them. And that was when it started to change for me when he would deploy. And I would definitely have that sense of, um, you know, I, I just wanting him to be safe. Uh, but for the first little while, I really just lived in, in, in this naive space. I didn't think that much about it. Um, and it wasn't until I was sort of forced to think about it that it became more a part of those conversations, those feelings when he started to deploy. And certainly those increased as we started to have children. And I knew that the impact of, of you know, the potential risk was much greater. Yeah. Well, I want to get to obviously having kids and, you know, Murphy's law of, of you know, what happens when we're on shift or deployed. Um, but speaking of Brandon, you told a very powerful story at Echelon and I want to again commend you on your your presentation I thought it was so powerful and I know everyone was poking you with a stick to get you to to get up there and present um but it was it was incredible and I think it was a, a very different perspective and obviously a lot of the men that spoke prior um so you know as you said you're you're kind of in that naivety space so tell me about you know that that sobering moment and what what it was like through your lens and what you guys had to do as far as death notification and that kind of thing. Yeah. So um, the first two years, the first year really of our marriage was consumed by buds, Flynn's going to buds, and I, and I told this at the muster, but you know our weekends were spent at our buddy's house sanding and painting helmets like it, we weren't like going out and having this great time and traveling with newlyweds and going to the beach like no we were preparing for Flynn to just go back to buds on Monday and um but in that we we garner these really amazing relationships one of whom with uh, Brennan Looney Brennan was my my husband's swim buddy in in the SEAL team's his best friend in through buds um just an incredible incredible guy I mean you talk about someone who is just he's the, he's the best. I mean, he was just so, such a good friend, such a good teammate, such a good, you know, uh, uh, husband to his wife. I mean, he just was the best. And, um, it's, it's once again, when I think of Brendan, he's invincible, like he's invincible. And at the time I looked at all of his friends and all of his brothers and thought they're invincible. And I was working at San Diego state university and it's really rare for my husband to even come to work in general, let alone in the middle of the week. And he showed up uh, at my office, which was already a little bit of a red flag. Um, and then as I looked at him, I could see, I could just see that something was terribly wrong. And um, so we went outside for a walk. It was actually Leif Babin who had delivered the news to him. Um, and Flynn describes it as there was a helicopter that crashed and he got word that the helicopter crashed and that the helicopter was from SEAL Team 3. And he describes it as getting the news and just this instinct that Brennan was on that plane or on that helicopter. Um, and he can't explain like really how, why he felt that way, but he basically went into Lave's office and was like, tell me it's not Brennan. Um, and Lave was, you know, really working to not give any information until the family had been notified. But 
Flynn knew, Flynn knew, and Leif, Leif delivered the news. So he came to my office and told me that Brendan had died in this helicopter crash. And we just sort of had to wait until Amy, his wife, had been notified. So we waited. We actually went to In-N-Out just waiting for that phone call. And we were eating our you know, lunch in, in silence. And he finished. And he was like, OK, you know what? I'm done feeling sorry for myself. We're going to go do what we can to take care of the family and do what we can to take care of Amy. And it was like 30 seconds later, we had a call that Amy had been notified and we could go to her house. Um, so we showed up at Amy's house and... It's, it still gets me because we walked in, I was pregnant at the time with our second child. So I was already like emotional and we walked in and like the weight in that room, the weight in that house was nearly unbearable for me. So I just had to say, okay, cool. I can't be the friend that's going to sit and hold your hand on the couch because this is like too much pressure. Um, and so Flynn really went in to kind of do what he could and, and be there with Amy. She had her sister-in-law and her other friend there. And I just went to our Keiko officer that was there managing the, the logistics. And I said, hey, how can I help? Just put me to work. I need to be doing something right now. Um, and that really provided a ton of um, outlet for me to deal with the, the emotions in that space. Um, and there were just things that happened in that that hour at her house that just just changed my entire life. And I'm seeing it from the outside perspective, not even an ounce of what she's feeling in that moment. Um, but when we talk about that idea of, you know, how did you feel when your husband deployed? It was that day that really changed everything for me when I realized that these guys are not invincible and these things happen. And it was just, it was such a terrible feeling. Um, and we were lucky that we got to be a part of that experience with the family and Hopefully we we helped them throughout that time. They certainly helped us, but it was it was just something I had never dealt with before. And even to this day, that that moment really changed my whole entire perspective. Um, and it changed for Flynn too. And it just it was it was horrible. It, it is the only way that I can describe it. Yeah, well, I'm I'm so sorry, and thank you for for telling a story. I had uh, Debbie Lee on uh, a few days ago, um, so obviously a different perspective as a mother. But I think it's so important that people hear these stories because it's easy to put a PowerPoint up on a on a news channel and say, "Oh, here's the casualties," and it's you know a, a sterile number. Well, every single one of those people was a husband, a father, a brother, a son, a, you know, daughter, whoever it was. Um, you know, and one single life, you know, is, is the ripple effect of that is horrendous. And we see it with the fire service too. Like one single firefighter will fill a church. So it's awful. Well, and I can tell you, so Brennan's funeral was out in, uh, in Maryland. And so we flew out and my, you know, we were involved with the family and sort of helping with the, those arrangements. Um, and I look back on Brennan's funeral and it, it is one of the most heartbreaking things I've ever been a part of. And yet in this really weird way, one of the most beautiful things I've seen. Um, to your point, there were thousands of people in this amazing, beautiful Catholic church. And then to show up at Arlington National Cemetery with the horse-drawn carriage and the um, 21 gun salute and the, the seals pounding their tridents into that casket, it was it was crushing and yet so beautiful. It was so beautiful. Um, so yeah, yeah. The impact, the ripple effect, the lasting feelings. I mean, I can't talk about it even today without feeling that emotion, feeling that sadness um, in, in a life that, and the potential that didn't get to take place. So um, yeah, 
there's not much more you can say about it. No, no. And that's the reason why I started this. We had this horrendous couple of years where we lost six firefighters and it was all different things from cancer and heart disease to suicide and overdose and you know, all the things that, you know, plague the military too. And my thing is I, I, I'm just heartbroken if a folded flag is given to someone and it was, there was no way around them losing their life, you know, whether it was a tsunami or an earthquake or, you know, and they were you know, just, just, uh, you couldn't have prepared for it. But what kills me, and obviously we have the same in the military, is all the preventable ones. You know, we can train and I know the SEALs rely on their training and we rely on our training and absolutely it makes us safer. But it's areas where, you know, whether, they're burning tires and, you know, and waste, you know, in a camp and in a, in a fob somewhere and people are dying from, from that or whether we're not treating our veterans well and they're dying from overdoses and suicides. Those are the ones that really kill me because it makes me angry then as well. Yeah. It's just, you know, you're sad to, to miss your friend, to miss someone that you cared about. But for me, what's so sad when, especially when people die young, you know, Brendan was young is, the potential of his life gone like that, you know, like they didn't get to have kids and I would have loved to have met, you know, he would have been an incredible father. It's like, it's that potential that is just so heartbreaking. Um, and I, I just, I can only imagine in your line of work, that's, that's what you, that's what you're left with that guilt and that burden of knowing that that life didn't get to fulfill all the amazing things that they were capable of. Yeah, exactly. Well, speaking of children, so you mentioned about, you know, having one being pregnant with the second. So let's kind of go back to the the family dynamic again. So as now, not only, uh, you know, a newly married woman getting on, on with her life as her, her husband is deployed, now you're a mother. Tell me about that family dynamic, especially now that kind of uh, fear has, has embedded itself after losing Brendan. Yeah. So we, we got married, my husband started buds and I had this big, big vision of like, cool, he's in buds now. So we're going to wait to have kids. Cause you know, we didn't really get that, that newlywed year and, and sort of, we didn't get any of that, what you typically get when you get married and you're just kind of figuring things out together. And so I had this big plan of like, we're going to wait, you know, we'll, we'll do this down the road. We'll give us some time. And of course, nature has its own plans. I, I feel like I always tell Flynn, it's just that he puts things out in the universe and the universe provides because Flynn wanted kids quickly and I did not. And the universe gave him what he wanted in, in as, as it does in most, in most instances. Um, and so it, we were only married a year when I found out I was pregnant with our son, our first son. Um, and so, you know, the first deployment Flynn went on, we had a little toddler. And so we, <laughs> I had to very quickly figure out how to manage this new life. I was young. I had a full-time job. I had a toddler at home. My husband was deployed. Um, there's so many things there that I look back on and, yeah, I don't miss a lot of those things, but I'm so grateful for that time. I really am. And um, we were lucky that my husband started deploying and actually my my oldest was pretty young at the time. So he didn't really, I don't know that he really understood it. I, I don't know that he really felt it. I'm sure that he did in some way, but he was just so little, you, you know, you didn't really get the sense that he knew his dad was gone. Like this is just, you know, what he knew. Um, and then very quickly, you know, we had our second son within two years as well. And so, you know, now, now deployments are getting a little more challenging. I, even when he wasn't deploying, he was gone all the time. I mean, he'd be home for two days, gone for three weeks, home for a week, gone for a month. I mean, the training cycle is 
incredibly demanding. So it's not just the deployments for an entire, you know, for the entire time we were in really, he was consistently gone. I mean, you talk about first words, first steps, birthdays, holidays, so many different celebrations and milestones that he missed. Um, And I had to just always remember that he was missing out on those things. So in the grand scheme of things, despite what I was dealing with and trying to raise two kids and a full-time job and sort of on my own, I got to see and be a part of all of that. And he got the short end of the stick because he he wanted to be there. He wanted to see those things and be a part of those things and he was missing out. And so I, it helped me keep a little bit of perspective when I was maybe feeling overwhelmed by, by it all. Um, but yeah, we had two kids pretty young in the SEAL teams and uh, it wasn't until the last deployment that I started to see the impact it was having, particularly on our oldest. And, and I had shared at the muster, but my husband, before he deployed, he got him this, um, it's, it's a company called Hug a Hero, and they have these daddy dolls. And it's basically a picture of my husband standing, you know, he's in his uniform um, and they make it into like this like plush little pillow, um, kind of like a stuffed animal. And my oldest would carry that thing everywhere with him. Like, I'm not kidding. If we had left it at a gas station an hour away, we were turning around and going to get it. Left with it. He talked to it. He, you know, he, any trip we went on school and his, I mean, he carried that thing everywhere with him. And it was really watching him with this daddy doll that I got the sense of, you know, he was still really young, but like he missed his dad. He missed his dad a lot. Um, and so that was, that was hard. That was really hard. Um, as he got older, I think it was made so much harder as he got older because I recognized the impact it was having on him. Um, you know, I could deal with it. I could manage it all. I could carry all the weight and no problem. But to see that it was impacting our son in that way was just tough as a mom to not be able to, to comfort him and, and really give him what it is that he needed, which was his dad. Yeah. Now is, is uh, Flynn still active duty then? No, Flynn got out. Um, so, you know, there's a certain period in the SEAL teams where you either, you know, sort of commit to the career um, or you move on and do something else. And he um, he wanted to be home more. You know, he definitely was always a family guy, wanted to be there with his kids. Um, but he also had bigger aspirations outside of the military. So he decided to get out um, in 2012 and he went to, he applied and got into business school. So he went and got his MBA. We kind of uprooted our family, moved to Boston for that two, two year period uh, for him to get his MBA. Um, yeah. And, and it's been great. He misses it. He was in, he was in active, he was active reserves and inactive reserves. And I think he finally signed like the final separation papers like a month ago. So he's been hanging on a little bit. Um, he certainly misses aspects of, of the SEAL teams for sure, as they all do. But um, but he had other aspirations and other things he wanted to do. Beautiful. Well, just before we move forward to your journey into Echelon Front, um, I think one of the things that, that I hear over and over again, whether it's firefighter or, or law enforcement wives or whether it's the military, is, you know, what, say, for example, you're a wildland firefighter, they might be out for months at a time. That wife or that husband, you know, if it's a female firefighter, um, is a single parent for that time, you know. And so there's an element of that person returning and it's like, well, I was doing just fine and now you're coming in expecting everything to be exactly how it was before. How did you guys deal with that initial transition when he came home? Yeah, it's it's a, such a good question. And I think it's something a lot of people have to manage, especially Millie. I mean, in, in those scenarios, when you have a spouse or someone in your home that's gone uh, for an extended period of time, there is always that period of sort of readjustment. Um, 
And and for me, you know, we we kind of chatted about it earlier, but you know, it's Murphy's law. Like my husband would leave, even if it was just a three week training trip, and like the day he left, my bathroom would flood. And it was like, great, I'm pregnant. I've got a toddler at home, and I now have to go deal with like water coming out of my bathtub onto the floor. Um, and so I think what really happened was that I started to create this very um, strong sense of emotional independence and just this ability to sort of go and get things done and solve things. When he would come home, you know, I remember, I remember so clearly, like there was one trip he came home on and he was like, Hey, where are the um, wipes? He was trying to like help, like change, a, change a baby or something. And he's like, where are the wipes? And I had that like initial sense of frustration. Cause I was like in the same spot they've been in since we had this baby, you know, like, and I had to realize like, he's coming back into this. He is not, he's been focused on his mission, focused on his guys, focused on what he needs to do. And so I have to give him a little grace when he comes back home that like, he's, he needs time to adjust. He needs time to, to get reacclimated. And I just, for me, I had to learn how to really communicate with him what it is that I needed. I needed to communicate how he could help and support us because it wasn't that he was coming home and he just wasn't thinking about how he could help and support the family or how he could be engaged with us and the kids. Is that we had not been his focus for so long that he wasn't really sure how. And he'd come in and he didn't, he, it's almost like he didn't want to step on my toes. Um, and so I just had to be really clear and like, hey, you know what would be great is if you could help me with this. And every time I would do that, he'd be like, oh, awesome. If I took the opportunity, if I was just thinking it like, oh, I wish he would do this or he doesn't do this or I, you know, all of a sudden I find myself in this cycle of like resentment and frustration. And meanwhile, he has no idea what it is he can do to help me. And he's seeing me sort of manage everything. And he's just trying to let me go because he doesn't want to get in the way. And so it just took a lot of really, you know, communicating together and me being very clear in, in what I needed. Um, and also me being clear in some ways that like, hey, I got this. I'll take care of this. Like this is let me just continue with this thing because you're going to leave again in a week. And I want to make sure that this part of our routine stays intact or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, that's that's a hard thing. That, that transition period is definitely challenging. And I think you just have to really focus on communicating effectively. Yeah, well, it's interesting as well, because, you know, we're fixers in the fire service. You call 911 and if it's not a police incident, then we have to figure out how the hell to mitigate that. Obviously, some people you know, in the military may be you know, officers, like you said, and, and, you know, managing a whole bunch of people and problem solving there. So to go from fixing to coming home when the husband or wife has been fixing just fine on their own, it is a weird thing because you, you want to, you want to help, but like you said, sometimes it can actually hinder. So, I mean, I mean, I know communication is such a simple concept, but yeah, to get, to get those two to, to, to communicate, to have a routine when we transition back in, I think is very important. Well, and you know, it's interesting. You talk about like, you know, you want to, my husband, same thing. He wanted to come home and like get in there and to help fix it. And so sometimes it, it required me more than anything to check my ego and like, you know what? He just wants to help in this. Let him go do that. You know, for him, I, in fact, early on, he was he was on a training uh, um, a, a training excursion, and he called back home. He had a break, and I had just had one of those days. Like everything had gone wrong. I was just frustrated, and I found myself on the phone, just totally like kind of laying it all out there. Like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this other thing happened, and you know, I kind of get through this little rant, and he was quiet. This was early in our marriage, and and, I, and I'm so grateful for this conversation because. He was quiet and then his, his quietness sort of frustrated me. And I was like, what, you don't have anything to say? Like, the, you know, 
I, I just felt this sense of frustration. And he was like, Jamie, I, I'm hearing all these things. And all I can think about is the fact that I can't help you. I'm just thinking how guilty I feel because I can't help you. I can't fix the, the faucet. I can't do these things for you. I can't, there's nothing I can do. And it was that realization to me that like, you know what? I can help in my husband accomplishing his mission by covering down here at the home front and not putting him in a position where he's going to be worried about what's going on at home. And so it changed how I communicated with him when he was gone and deployed. And I didn't tell him all the bad things. Now, certainly there were things that I needed to share with him if a kid went to the hospital or something happened. But um, for the most part, he'd call and I'd just say, oh, things are great. We're doing awesome. We're, we're, we're figuring it out. It's great. Everything's good. Because I knew that that was the best way for me to help and support him in the things that he needed to do because he needed to be focused when he was out there so that he could come home and be with us. And then when he did come home, I had to check my ego and realize that he's been gone for for four months, six months, and he just wants to help. And so I can check my ego, I can let him help, and I can communicate really well what it is I need from him. Um, and that really helped us right out the gate, understand how to how to communicate when he was gone and then how to communicate when he was home. Well, no, but I think that's such a, a unique perspective. And you touched on the guilt of not being able to help. And I think that's very important. There's, there's, I, fi- I found a lot of guilt when, for example, in Florida, here we get a hurricane. And I'd be driving away from my family, the, the skilled responder, um, and, you know, going to protect strangers. So I'm sure it was the same with him, especially when, you know, God forbid there were fires or something like that, you know, close and threatening you guys, that he was thousands of miles away, again, technically protecting strangers. Yeah, for sure. And, and I think that's where it's critical in, in any marriage, not just, you know, in the military or first responder uh, marriages, but in any marriage that you're fully aligned on what it is your mission is as a family. And in that moment, you know, Flynn's mission was the priority. Um, You know, he had signed up to do his job. He had signed up to do something and an an important job and a job I was incredibly proud of him for. And so the best way I could support him was to cover down on the home front, to take care of those things at home and to alleviate that from anything he ever had to think of so that he could go do his job really well. Because him doing his job well meant that he would come home. And so, and, and he would bring his guys home. So I think um, it's hard sometimes because it's easy, you know, he'd be gone. And, and like I said, everything, all these things would happen. And I would all of a sudden just feel like this sense of, you know, over being overwhelmed. And I had to remember that my job was to take care of these things and to solve these problems um, on my own so that he could be focused on his mission, which was the priority at that time. Brilliant. Well, obviously, you took a lot of those skills and you brought them forward to um, Echelon Front. So walk me through, you know, how, how did that begin? What was the genesis of your your part in that? Yeah, so um, so it was actually, you know, it's a really cool story about the importance of building good relationships at every opportunity that you that you can. And Flynn was uh, working at SEAL Team One with Leif Babin and Leif had basically asked the group, if anyone would take on the responsibility of planning what's called a change of command event. It's a, you know, when the old old commander is leaving and the new commander is coming in, they do this event to do, you know, a, a proper changing of the command. Um, and so Flynn volunteered for that. And then in true Flynn fashion, he came home and basically handed me the packet of information and, and 
and I took over. So <laughs> I ended up planning that change of command, which was really cool because I got a chance in that opportunity to work with Leif Babin um, and to build a little bit of a relationship with him in executing that event. Um, and so little did I know what that would mean years later, but, you know, I got that short opportunity to work with him. And then it was a couple years later, as I mentioned, my husband went to business school and we were there in Boston and Leif was visiting a client out in Boston and, and stopped in and had dinner with us. And he actually was talking to Flynn about this company, Echelon Front, that him and Jocko had started and kind of what their vision was in this book that they were writing and and sort of what their mission was going to be. And he was actually sort of recruiting Flynn at the time, like trying to convince Flynn to come over and maybe join them. Um, but Flynn had committed to uh, McKinsey & Company, a big consulting firm, um, and was was ready to, to go and do that. And so it wasn't the right timing for Flynn. Um, and about a week later, I think actually Flynn emailed Leif and was like, hey, you were talking about this thing at Echelon Front. He was like, you know, really who you need is, is Jamie. And you might want to consider, you know, maybe she would be a good fit for what you're looking for in the immediate. Um, and then again, in sort of these this happen chance, I was in New York with my family and we, my parents flew out. We went out there and Leif and Jenna, his wife, were living in New York and they had invited us to brunch. So we stepped away from my parents for a morning and we went and had brunch with them. And it was over brunch that Leif and I really started talking about Echelon Front and what he was doing here. Um, and again, we just had a cool conversation about it. We talked about it. Um, and, you know, there was no plans or anything. I, there was no offer on the table by any means. Uh, and if, it was a few weeks later, we had, we had relocated to Seattle um, for my husband to start his job there at McKinsey. And Leif sent me an email and said, hey, what do you think about coming on? You know, we really are, are, this is new. So we really only have capacity for some part-time work, but, you know, this is kind of our vision. And, you know, what do you think about coming on part-time? And I was, I was prepping to go back to a full-time career in higher education. Um, and I just saw the opportunity with Echelon Front, even though I had really no idea what that was going to look like. And so I took the opportunity to work with him part-time and just kind of feel it out in the, in the initial early stages. Um, and this is before the book came out, before the podcast, before the musters, before a lot of what we do here now. Um, and I had the opportunity to work with them essentially part-time in an admin capacity for the first year um, until the book was released. And once the book released, you know, things picked up significantly within the business and, and that transitioned to me uh, being a full-time member at Echelon Front. So talk to me about that because, I mean, you know, most of us became aware of Jocko after the book was released, obviously him, Leif, you know, JP, Jason, everyone would, were doing incredible things prior. Um, what did that look like from your eyes? You know, where, where were you guys at size wise and, and uh, exposure wise pre book versus post book? Yeah. So when I joined Leif and Jocko, it was just the three of us. Um, and like I said, I was working part time. Um, and, and to be honest, you know, I was working part time, but I was paying for full time childcare so that I could be able to do this job. And uh, I remember Flynn at one point, you know, he's always really supportive. There was no like push to, to move on. But he, you know, I, I could have easily gone back to the, my previous career. Um, and I was choosing instead, you know, Quite honestly, I was it was several steps backwards in my career to come to Echelon Front in sort of an admin capacity, whereas in my previous job, I had a full team of people. Um, but, you know, and Flynn asked me at one point, he said, hey, how long are, you know, how long are we going to do this? Kind of, you know, the, the full time that the part time care was not covering the cost for the full time care. So we were sort of in the red here. And um, and I just said, hey, just give me just give me six months. I really think that, you know, I'll have a good sense of the opportunity at Echelon Front. 
um, in six months. But there was just something about Leif and Jocko. There was something about their vision for Echelon Front that I just was drawn to. And I had the opportunity in the first couple months that I joined Echelon Front to read the manuscript to Extreme Ownership. And I read it and I immediately thought, wow, this book is different. This is different. Um, I sort of went into it a little hesitant because I thought, oh, Navy SEALs write a book. This is going to be like, you know, pounding on their chest. We're Navy SEALs. Look how cool we are. Um, and I read it and I realized, no, every chapter is about a major mistake that they made and the lessons that they learned from it. So it was a very humble book. I love the, I love the, the, the way that that it read like like a like a story like a book that you wanted just to keep reading and yet it had the business and the leadership components that other business books have and that that balance between the two just was unique in anything i'd read previously and honestly that first chapter of extreme ownership was amazing to me it was like a light bulb in reading it. And it, I read it really just as homework thinking like, oh, I just need to kind of understand what it is that they do. And I left that feeling like I had a much better sense of what it is that I needed to do as a leader. And really at the time, really applying it to my role as a mother, um, because I didn't have a team yet here at Echelon Front. And so I was really thinking of this as how it applied to me in general, not just in business. And um, so I read that book and I knew right away, this is something I want to be a part of. I was really excited about just their vision for what they wanted to do, their true intent of just wanting to help people become better leaders. Um, there is, you know, people people see Jocko and Leif on, on various things and it's easy to wonder, is that, does that trans, does that, does that, is that just the face they put on? And having been here for so long and gotten to see all the behind the scenes, I can tell you that it's not. This is absolutely the principles that they live. And everything that they talk about is so sincere and authentic to who they are. So if you know that, then you can, I think, really easily understand why I was so excited to continue working with them, because I just felt like this was going to be an incredible uh, journey to be a part of. I had no idea what that would actually look like. And it was it was a couple months later, the book came out um, and they were doing some work prior to that. Um, you know, they were doing, you know, back in the day, they were doing free gigs just to try to, you know, get experience with clients and get in with uh, clients. And so, you know, they were doing work, but it wasn't wasn't even close to what we have, you know, nowadays. And the book came out and it was it was really about a month later. The book, you know, came out it had an impact we we didn't even expect and the business just started rolling in and we started to get opportunities to work with a lot of different clients, different kind of industries. And I started full-time um, at that point, they brought me on full-time. And then from there, it's just been a complete, a complete whirlwind. It's like seven years have gone by and we've brought on new instructors, new team members. We've built out some incredible programs and it's just been an absolute honor to be a part of it all. Beautiful. What about the musters and the roll calls? Um, you know, when uh, post book, when did when did that concept come? And and you know, talk to me about the the kind of um, metamorphosis of that concept. Yeah, the book was released released in 2015, and we did our first muster in 2016. So it was about a year, and we had been talking about this idea of doing a leadership conference, um, but it was always just something like in in passing, and it was about two and a half months maybe three. It wasn't more than three, but it was just a few months before we actually hosted our first muster. We were on a call. It was me, Leif, and Jocko. And they basically said, hey, we've been talking about doing this leadership conference. I think it's time that we just pull the trigger. Let's get this done. And I was like, okay, cool. So we left that conversation knowing we wanted to do a conference. 
We thought two days would be a good format. We wanted to do it in San Diego. We wanted to do it sometime in the next three months. And that was kind of it. We didn't have a name of it. We didn't really know what the format was going to be, what the schedule was going to be like, all the other little components. And we left with those main points. And Leif and Jocko gave me full ownership in coming up with what that looked like. So we did our first muster a couple months later. We had 365 people. It was sold out based on, you know, the number that we were trying to raise. In fact, 350 was sort of our goal. So we we oversold a little bit to that 365. Um, everything about the muster, you know, the, the, the base of like what we do now um, came from that first muster, even from the title to what we give attendees to the feel that we wanted people to have. Um, to the really strong sense that Leif and Jocko had of like, hey, we don't want this to be a thing where, you know, Leif and Jocko and, and as speakers that, you know, we 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 speak and then we go off stage and we sit in a green room. Like we want engagement. We want to be out there talking with people. We want to step off the stage and immediately start taking questions. We want this to be the best leadership conference anyone's been to. Um, and there is just, we've done, well, we're coming up on our 11th muster. There has been some incredible events and really cool um, experiences in those times, but there is nothing that compares to that first muster. The energy, the people showing up, um, like-minded leaders just really excited about learning more about these principles and how to apply them in their lives. Um, and we've obviously grown. We've made a ton of improvements. We've grown in the size of these events um, and the various components and things that we offer at these events. But that first muster was special and people showed up and it just, the energy that created, I had never been to a conference where people were not on their phones, not on their computers, eyes up, taking notes the entire time. I mean, people would like run to the bathroom just to be able to get back and get in their seats and not want to miss anything. Um, and that was special because you just don't see that at a lot of business conferences. And um, we're lucky that even, even coming up on our, you know, we just finished our 10th event, that that still is the case. The people who come to these musters are in the game. They are ready to learn and to find out how these principles can impact their lives, not just professionally, but personally as well. So we're lucky because those events are successful, um, primarily because of the atmosphere that our attendees help to create. Yeah, no. Well, like I said, I got to to witness it at, at Orlando, and I thought it was incredible. And I heard, I heard some interesting things being said. One, you know, was, oh, I wish the Chiefs were all here, and I agree a hundred percent. But the the kind of, I guess, the answer to that as well is that, and also the firefighters, the engineers, the captains. That you know, it's it's very easy to blame and say, oh, those those people should be there. And absolutely, there's some horrible leadership in the fire service. I'll be the first to to say that, but. I got a lot of the ownership from and look back retroactively to discussions I had with Jocko and, you know, things that I'd seen, seen and done in my career. Um, and even when there was horrible leadership, there was still the ownership of me to realize that I'm still the only one that can control, control what I can control. And that was a big takeaway, you know, even more humility than, than I thought I had, you know, and, and, uh, there was some just very, very, um, sobering, mirrors being held to our faces and you know <laughs> gonna go back but then as you said i saw 99 percent engagement and therefore the people that were on their phones were like you know giant red flag you could see the person that had had been given a free ticket to go there you know and then everyone else you know had either fought for it for their department or you know paid out of their own pocket so the engagement was incredible like you said them actually being not only presenting, but stepping down and being amongst people as they did their 
Their exercise was phenomenal. But I think having read the books myself, I still took so much more away. And I think that's why I do what I do here. I think human storytelling adds another complete level that you can't get from a book. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I've been here for seven years. I have heard the combat leadership brief hundreds and hundreds of times. I've been to every single muster. I've read the book multiple times. Um, and it doesn't matter how much I see these things play out. There is still so much for me to learn. The reminders of these principles are equally poignant the 10th time I've been to a muster as it was that very first event. Um, and what's what's amazing is that we've had people that have gone to several musters and they always talk about the fact that, hey, I wasn't sure if I'd get as much out of it or if, if it would feel repetitive. Um, and thankfully, that's not the case. The feedback we get regularly is that, you know, hey, I came to the first muster and this is what I took away from it. And then I came to the next muster and actually I've been implementing these principles. And so um, but I was still having some challenges. And so what I got from it this time was a different perspective than I had noticed the first time. It was I got I got information that I just, you know, kind of let go to the wayside that first time because I, I already got what I needed. So um, I think what's really cool about these events is that we get a chance you know, to to learn from our attendees too, to hear about the challenges they're facing in in business, to hear about the challenges they're facing in their in their home lives and with their families. And it helps us to continually think through this content and how we can better teach it, how we can better communicate it. Um, you know, changes to the content over time that certainly happened where we start to talk about things in a slightly different way that is hopefully more impactful to people. So we get as much out of these events as the attendees do. We learn so much from the people that we get to engage with. Um, you know, and there's there's also just that component of, you know, we get to see the impact that it's having in people's lives. And that is absolutely a, a massive part of our mission here at Echelon Front, but it, it helps us as instructors um, to continue to be motivated and wanting to help as many people learn these principles and implement them within their lives. So, um, you know, the, the musters, the roll calls, these events, these opportunities are, are beneficial for, for all parties, for sure. Yeah, well, you mentioned the roll call, and that was the event that you did specifically for first responders. What are some of the the challenges, issues that you started seeing over, you know, these last few years coming from that space, the first responder space? Yeah, you know, we get we get the benefit of working with a lot of different first responder groups, whether it's law enforcement, fire, um, or just general government agencies. Um, and there's a consistent need and there's a consistent request and ask for training and specifically leadership training. And so we we see from our perspective that there's a lack of training available to people in these in these various um, groups. And so we're very committed to wanting to provide training to first responders, to police, to fire. We think that these principles can help in, in every capacity. And we talked earlier about that work-life balance. What I love about these principles is that they can absolutely be applied to your leadership position um, within your job, but they're equally as critical, if not more so, at home with your family and in your communities. And so we know these principles work. We believe wholeheartedly in them. Um, and so we definitely have this, this desire to want to help first responders who are doing an incredibly challenging job and, and going out there every single day and putting their um, life on, on the line in a lot of cases and going in dangerous situations, leaving their family home. Um, we, we know that these principles can help them in, in their job and hopefully help them avoid some of the really horrible things that happen within those jobs. So 
you know, our, our desire is just to see opportunities where we can provide more training with those groups. Uh, the roll call was one way for us to do it. We also do some, you know, training with various departments and we go in and we, and we do training with them. Um, but there's a lack of training. And I think that that's one area that all of government could really focus on is providing not just tactical training for how they can do their job, but leadership training, development training, and, you know, within the whole person, not just within their specific job role. Um, and I believe really strongly that extreme ownership and these principles um, can help in that capacity. Absolutely. And what I love about that, you know, as we touched on earlier, is you know, when there's good leadership, there's a good understanding of, of a high level of training, there's a good understanding of wellness within your department. Therefore, there's a, a less chance that you have to go to a church and hand someone a folded flag. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, what's interesting is people, clients will sometimes say like, hey, you know, this is all good. You know, this works in combat, but combat's like life and death. And like, how does this actually apply to us? Um, but we're dealing in people's livelihoods and people in, in business for sure. And we're and people in first responders, they are dealing in those life and death scenarios. Um, and if these principles work in the harshest of environments in, in, in an urban combat environment, then they can absolutely work in any other capacity, whether it's in your business, in, you know, in every, any industry, and certainly at home with your family, which I think is, is a part that a lot of people miss. Um, that your your family needs leadership too, and that's your responsibility. So, um, you know, we need we need to do a better job for all of our first responders and giving them really good training that will help them in in every capacity within their leadership role. Beautiful. Well, as as you mentioned, you know, some of our agencies don't have you know large budgets like some of the business world does. Um, talk to me about some of the things that you do for the the, the responder community so you can make it more affordable. Yeah, we've got a number of different things we're, we're doing. And honestly, this is definitely an area we need to continue to grow and develop in and offering these kinds of opportunities. So we're continually looking for opportunities to provide this training within those um, within those groups. Uh, some things we have now, obviously, we do a lot of training that we might go on site with a unit. Sometimes we'll have a couple departments that might pool together uh, funds to bring us out, pool their training funds together and do a, a full day workshop or half day workshop. You know, we definitely do on site training. Um, the ability to now provide virtual training has been a game changer for us because uh, we can obviously provide virtual training at a much lower cost. Um, and yet the impact can still be you know, in some ways, maybe even better. Um, and so virtual training has allowed us to do a lot of work with first responder groups that maybe previously didn't have the money or training budget to bring us out. Um, we're always really flexible with those groups. So we're always really cognizant of their budgets and trying our best um, within our capacity and, and our demand as well to to deliver training, you know, regardless of what our kind of budget they might have. Um, for our muster events that we just talked about, we offer a service discount. So anyone in the service industry, first responders, active duty, military, police, law enforcement, um, fire, all of those groups can access our service discount, which is half off the ticket price. Um, and then recently, we've put a lot of effort around our online Extreme Ownership Academy, and that's our online training platform. And that is really the most cost-effective, scalable option here at Echelon Front that gives you access to this content. In addition to just the training we have on there, we have, you know, we have the, it's called EO Certification 101. Um, it's 12 modules that all 
follow the format of the book. So you're diving in deep to each one of those principles in the book. It's a great way to sort of read the book and then have like the next step in learning. Um, there's a bunch of additional foundation courses. There's um, you know, resources and guides within the platform. But the best part about the platform, in my opinion, is that we run three live sessions a week. And we've been doing that for over a year now, sometimes, sometimes four. Um, but there's three consistent sessions a week. And it's an hour. It's live. You can join on Zoom. You can ask a question to Jocko, to Late, to members of our team. Um, there's usually some little um, leadership principle or discussion at the beginning. And then we open it up for just general Q&A. So we get a lot of people that join that. We do do a first responders only session as well. And that one, you don't have to be a member of, um, of our academy to join. Um, and we do that once a month. So we're trying to find ways to get this information out there. Um, the beauty of, of the academy is that if you can't join live because you guys are busy and you have a lot going on, they, the videos just go up into the platform. And you can access them at your own pace. So we are constantly looking for ways for how can we help clients, how, you know, not only just our general clients, but individuals, and obviously those in the first responder community hear these principles and learn of them and, and implement them within their world. So um, we have to do a better job. We know that we have to continue looking for those opportunities. But I do think we have a few things now that that provide that in the in the immediate until we have more to offer. Beautiful. I think, I mean, you've covered all bases between books and podcasts and online training and, you know, real life events. So hopefully people listening will, will go to the website and we'll get the links in a minute from you. Um, you know, and, and find whatever they can use. But I mean, I, I can attest that I was definitely, you know, the, the books resonated with me deeply, but the event was incredible. So whether it's online or actually in person, I urge people to, to take steps towards that. Now, one more area before we transition to some closing questions. You just yourself um, got promoted to a new position. So talk about your own personal kind of climb up the ladder within Echelon from from that leap of faith, taking a pay cut, which I can absolutely relate to, <laughs> to where you're at now. Yeah, you know, like I said, when I joined Echelon Front, it was a, a few steps back for me in my career. I was all by myself. I was doing a lot of kind of, you know, mundane admin tasks. Um but I did have a vision for what this company would someday be. And I decided really early on that what I was going to do was that I was going to find every possible way to support Leif and Jocko and to add value to what they were building. And I knew if I did that consistently and I just delivered on what I said I was going to do, I looked for ways to cover down for them. I anticipated what it is that they might need. Um, and I just worked hard that that would that would provide a path here at Echelon Front, even though I didn't know what that would look like. Um, and lucky for me, I got to work for the two guys that wrote the book, Extreme Ownership. So, you know, the incredible part about my journey here is that it's not as if I didn't make mistakes um, or that I still don't. But every time that I make a mistake or I've made a mistake, when I take ownership of it, I, I, I am reciprocated that ownership and the trust builds. And so there, you know, there were definitely things in the beginning um, that, you know, we had to sort of work through or learn. And at every turn, like they would see that I could take ownership. And instead of just like giving me less, they'd give me more, more trust, more responsibility, um, more, you know, ownership over the plans that we were creating. Um, till, till now we get to the point where I call Leif or Jocko and I say, hey, here's the situation. What do you think? And their first question is like, well, what do you think? And they let me come up with almost every single plan and they help me and support me when I need it. But it really started with me determining right out the gate that I was going to do everything I could to just support them, to lead up the chain, to 
deliver on what it was that I said I was going to do. And as I've done that consistently, it opened the door to then join them full time. Then that opened the door to then hire and start building out my own team. Um, And that continued to grow. And then as I brought on new people on my team, I relinquished some of those admin tasks to somebody else, which may help me to elevate and look you know, in more of a strategic viewpoint. Um, and then I got to hire more people and I got to be involved in, in different things. And over the seven years, it's just been this slow progress to building a very solid, trusting relationship with Leif and Jocko. Um, and I was just absolutely blown away and surprised and humbled um, at the last muster when Jocko pulled everyone together and um, promoted me from director of operations to our chief operating officer. And it's a true testament in um, their leadership because they gave me at every turn opportunities to succeed. And they supported me. They implemented Cover Move. They impl- I mean, they implement decentralized command to just a level that most people can't ever get to. They really give me the space to make decisions, to fail. Um, and when I do fail, they take ownership of it and they support me in sort of the steps to rectify those things. Um, it's just an incredible environment to be a part of. And I've just been lucky that I've been able to learn from them and to learn from my colleagues, Dave Burke, you know, JP Danell, two of my closest friends. Um, and I think between all of us, we're, we're implementing and working to use these principles in every aspect of our business. And I think that's a true testament to the success of implementing these things properly is that I've seen not only the progress in my own life, but here at Echelon Front, the, my ability to then level up and take on more responsibility and do more leading up to this title change is absolutely a component of me implementing these principles and to learn uh, from Life and Jocko what that looks like. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned JP and Dave. So when we first communicated that they were the first two that came on the show, I think that was about four years ago now, at least. Right. Yeah. Um, and you know, they, they, they did some powerful presentations, but this last time was the first time that you actually presented. So what was that like? Because it wasn't like you got to stand up in front of a, a kindergarten class. That was, <laughs> uh, that was quite a, an intense group to have your first experience. Yeah. So, you know, luckily in this last year, I've had some opportunities through Zoom and through our academy to um, transition a little bit more into an instructor role. Um, So I I, I have had little opportunities here and there to, to, you know, teach, essentially teach these principles. Um, The muster is just a very different thing. It's, It's there is a strong sense of wanting to make sure that I do justice to these principles because I believe so wholeheartedly in them. And also, you know, you look at my peers and there was always this sense of concern that I, that maybe I didn't have value to add when you're talking, when you're, you know, talking in a lineup of Dave Burke and JP Danell and Jocko Willink and Leif Babin and these incredible you know, seasoned combat veterans, like, you know, what could I possibly add in that story um, that's going to, you know, help anyone? Um, And so I definitely wrestled with that in the beginning. Um, And then I started to think about the people that I get to engage with every day. I have a unique position here at Echelon Front because I'm kind of in the background. And so I get to be the first point of contact for a lot of our clients and individuals and whether it's emails or posts or phone calls or discussions. And I get to hear the impact of these principles within people's lives. And I started to realize that the vast majority of people that are reaching out and talking to me about the impact of these principles within their world were not 
seasoned combat veterans like my peers. They were actually a lot like me. They had read the book and they had realized that they had things that they needed to work on and improve. And they wanted to implement these principles in their businesses and their communities and their families. And that was me. I learned these principles when I joined here at Echelon Front and I started to implement them in my career here at Echelon Front, but more so with my family as the, you know, what I consider my greatest leadership responsibility. Um, And I started to see the progress in doing that. So I think when I got over this idea that, you know, I was, I wasn't going to be adding value to this incredible message of, you know, Leif and Jocko that they, that they've created, I started to think, how could I tell my story and share my perspective to give people something different to take away from the mustard, just a, a different thing to think through as they thought about these principles. Um, and that really led me to my presentation, which is really focused on the barriers of extreme ownership and these things that keep us from taking ownership, these things that keep us from understanding and really seeing the value in taking ownership of everything. Um, and then, you know, the, the plus for me is I got to share what we call the stories of impact and a couple, you know, there was like six of them in a sea of thousands and thousands of feedback we've received, um, where I got to share how these principles impacted people really with the intent of wanting people to understand that if they, if, if they apply these principles properly, they can absolutely see success in, in their lives. Um, and so it was just, it was really fun for me. I was so nervous if I'm being honest. Um, but I got off stage and there was just a sense of um, full adrenaline rush and it was just incredible. And I'm really, really humbled by a lot of the feedback that I've received and people, you know, loving the combat components, but wanting that other perspective of how these things apply at home with their families. So I, I hope I was able to deliver on that. No, you were absolutely. I think you definitely got the the largest round of applause of all the all the people that stood up, and I, I can understand the imposter syndrome, you know, fully. But it, it, it that polarization of not being an, you know a seal, I think was was a beautiful balance to the whole thing, and then obviously the perspective you told with Brendan's story just added that other layer as well. So I want to transition to some closing questions so I can let you go. The first one I love to to ask. Um, obviously, we talked about the Echelon Front books. Uh, is there any or are there any other books that you love to recommend that can be related to this discussion today or completely unrelated? Um, you know, in my past life, I, I love reading. I love to read a lot of different novels and different types of books. You know, obviously, I've read a lot of the leadership books growing up. Um, I think one of my longstanding favorite books was Tuesdays with Maury. Um, just a really cool perspective on thinking about your life in those final moments and the regrets that you might make and, and the choices that you made and, and wanting to share that journey with someone else to impact their lives. So that's always been a longstanding favorite of mine. But if I'm being honest, the book that has had the absolute biggest impact in my life is Extreme Ownership. And, tell, and telling you any other recommendation would be counter to what I know to be true is that that book has changed everything about how I think about leadership. So um, while there's a lot of really great books and I, I more than anything encourage people to read, I think it's an incredible thing to learn from other people. Um, Extreme Ownership will always remain as the, my number one recommendation. Brilliant. Now, what about uh, a movie and or a documentary? Dang. Um, a movie or a documentary? You know, Honestly, recently, uh, there, there's a lot of great stuff out there. Um, and I'm only going to say this because it was a recent uh, watch. 
And I used it in, in our women's assembly as we talked about leadership. Um, but it was, the, it was the recent Netflix documentary of the octopus, my teacher, the octopus. Um, and it was just an incredible story of this, you know, guy who was out, you know, and he would go out every day and find this octopus and follow it around and kind of just track its motions and track what it did. And you got to see all the things we talk about play out in this documentary, this, this octopus, uh, the, her, her ability to adapt and innovate and change and this power of relationships. I mean, there's so many cool, like little leadership lessons that were a bit of a surprise to me as I watched it. Um, so, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say that one just because it's recent, but there's been a lot of works in the past that um, I've really loved that have definitely given me a cool perspective as I've, you know, kind of grasped with, you know, who I am and what it is that I want to, to be. Beautiful. I think I've had that recommended once already, so I'm going to have to make sure I watch that then. <laughs> well, here's the thing. It's a very surprising, like, my kids were watching it. And I was like, oh, this looks lame. And then I sat down and watched it and found myself completely engrossed in the story. So it might be just a surprising, surprising more than anything. <laughs> well, I have got um, Cody coming on, Cody Gandhi. Um, and ah! then we're working on Leif as well. So are there any other people that you would recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world. Yeah, you know, you're heading down the right path. Um, I don't know if you, you know, here at Echelon Front, I think all of our instructors have a really cool perspective to add. Cody um, is a phenomenal, phenomenal instructor here at Echelon Front. I think he really has a good handle on what it is that first responder groups need. Um, he's taking over a lot of those training aspects here at Echelon Front and helping to build out various training uh, services that we can provide in the first responder world that I think are going to be critical um, in, in our ability to deliver that kind of training for those service lines. Um, but outside of our Echelon Front community, people that are really close to us um, you know, Jeff McGreevy and Chief Shy, and uh, his name's Roger Shy, but two of those, they're longtime troopers, longtime supporters of what we do. Um, you know, both of them have really amazing stories as it relates to these principles and how it's impacted them. But they also have the perspective of actually being in that world, um, you know, and understanding understanding components that we don't even understand having not been on the other side. Um, and so I think that they've done an incredible job at implementing these principles within their own departments. Um, they have a cool perspective on how these principles apply to law enforcement, fire, first responders in general. And um, so we definitely recommend them as well. Um, and then certainly, you know, we've got, we've got friends all over uh, that, would, that would be a good value add, but um, I think you're on the right path starting with Cody and we'll certainly make uh, Leif Babin happen as well. Cause he's got, he's got a really cool insight. Um, as he's worked with the vast majority of our law enforcement for the first couple of years here at Echelon Front. So I'm excited to help coordinate both of those. Beautiful. Yeah, Jeff was actually on the show a few weeks ago, so he's phenomenal. And another one I'm getting on who I know is uh, close with you guys is Nako Nolan as well. Yes, yes. Nako's great. Um, he, he'll, he'll be awesome. I don't know if, he, he, if you saw his documentary on Netflix, but it was, it was phenomenal. Yes, no, absolutely. All right. Well, then the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you and Echelon Front, what do you do to decompress? Um, so I'm a mother of three. My time is spent a lot with my kids outside of work. So, you know, outside of my kids, Echelon Front is everything. So it's really for me a lot is Echelon Front and my kids. And for me personally, what I like to do if I get those moments to myself, um, I love training jujitsu. I wish I could get there more often. There's always a balance of, you know, just 
feeling the guilt of not getting there as often as I'd like to, but jujitsu is an incredible, incredible sport. Um, and I, that that's really my favorite way to decompress. Um, outside of that, I love hiking. And I recently did a four day backpacking trip with three other women, actually Jocko's wife uh, came with us and as well as Jason's. Um, and I can tell you, I've never, I've never had that that true sense of detachment like I did on that trip. Um, so that is that is very soon going to become a, a common hobby for me. Uh, getting out there once a year and doing a couple of days in the mountains is just just life changing. Beautiful. Well, yeah, you mentioned jujitsu. Um, that's another one that's coming on is Dean Lister. Um, oh, stand by for that conversation, James. That guy is so. I just saw Dean uh, last night. We had dinner uh, before I I flew back home, and um, we were in San Diego. So a bunch of us were down there at Victory Training, and then we all went and had dinner. And uh, Dean, stand by for that conversation with Dean. He is brilliant. He's smart, and he he is just. He'll go. In, you'll you'll be talking about everything from like science to philosophy to you know music in in one conversation. He teaches jujitsu like no one else I've I've ever uh, trained with before, and he's just he's a really really cool guy. I'm sure he'll have a really unique perspective on that. Absolutely, another one that that I think I convinced him to. So I haven't actually set it up or anything yet. But Echo, I don't think anyone's really heard Echo's story either. So. <laughs> Yeah, you know what? People would probably love that because Echo, you know, he talks on the podcast, but it's always just here and there. Uh, to actually sit Echo down and get his full story would be pretty cool. Absolutely. I think I need to get over to San Diego and knock those out in one go. That's, Brilliant. That would be awesome. <laughs> All right. So then if people listening, if they, firstly, if they want to find Echelon Front or the Academy, where are the best places online for those? Yeah, so you can go to echelonfront.com. That's where you can find, you know, contact for how to get a hold of us. That's where you can find all the information for the events that we do and all the services that we provide. Um, that will also lead you to our online academy. But if you want to go straight to the academy and see what's there, it's just extremeownership.com. Um, but you can get all the information on those two websites. Brilliant. And then if people want to reach out to you or find you on social media specifically, where's the best place for you? Yeah. So I, I've recently been trying to get a little bit more in the social media game, but I, I'm on Instagram and, uh, and uh, Facebook and LinkedIn. You can find me at, at, at Jamie Lynn Cochran. Beautiful. Well, Jamie, I want to say thank you so much. Um, firstly, for trusting me for your first ever interview. I'm, I'm honored. Um, secondly, for, you know, responding four years ago and, and and getting some incredible people and getting this relationship to where it is now but and and then also to, on top of that just for for taking the time i know you've got something you've got to go and do now but for being so generous with your time telling your story telling us about brendan you know and, and, and bringing all those other elements to this conversation today yeah i appreciate it james obviously you know love the work that you're doing and uh hopefully hopefully for my first interview i, I didn't uh, i did it justice but um, you're obviously a great friend of Echelon Front. We're happy to support the work that you're doing. And um, it's critical within the communities that you work and serve. Um, and if there's other ways we can support, you know, we're always standing by. 